0: It was January 2019, that's when Johnny Depp decided to ring in the new year by filing a defamation case against his former wife, Amber Heard. In response, well, it was 18 months later when Amber Heard then filed a defamation countersuit against Depp, totaling $100 million dollars. And, and then by April 11, 2022, this highly anticipated trial finally began. And for nearly two months, millions of Americans tuned in for what has since become the most famous defamation case in the history of our country. I must confess that I didn't watch one single second of this highly publicized trial because I've got better things to do with my life. But when all was said and done, you know, I wasn't surprised to learn that Depp won $15 million in damages because, you know, the patriarchy and all. But seriously, though, you know, Johnny Depp won his case because Amber Heard was found guilty of defamation. And just to be clear, the word defamation, well, it refers to the slanderous speech that's designed to defame the good name of another Defamation is also a word that refers to the scandalous statements that are publicized through print. And while it's true that defamation cases are extremely difficult to win, well, the jury that deliberated during the Depp case ended up delivering a guilty verdict as they unanimously decided that Amber Heard was guilty of defamation and oh, so much more. Now, as we consider the way that Johnny Depp decided to deal with the defamation of Amber Heard, we should take a moment to ask how should the disciples of Christ deal with those who defame us? How should we deal with those who engage in defamation against us? How should we respond to those who attack us with slanderous speech? How should we handle those who might uh, be lying about us online? Should we rush to sue them? Should we simply ignore them? Should we challenge them with a word of rebuke? Should we return reviling accusations for reviling accusations? Or should we simply stay silent as we try to forgive and forget? Now, if these are questions that you've wrestled with, then you might like to know that the Lord Jesus actually provides us with a perfect plan for dealing with defamation. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that the disciples of Christ, well, we should deal with defamation by telling the truth. Secondly, we should also deal with defamation by restraining our response. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that we deal with defamation by enduring the enmity. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's dealing with those who were defaming his good name. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account, I, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that we've spent several weeks studying Luke's account of that night when the Lord Jesus was arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after being led to the house of the high priest where he was interrogated by the Sanhedrin, uh, the Lord Jesus was, was then brought before the Roman governor whose name was Pilate. And it was there where the religious leaders of Israel continued to defame his name by falsely accusing him of many things. With this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 23, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 1. Here we learn that the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man, but they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. The chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. And here in these verses, we find this multitude leading the Lord Jesus into the courts of a Roman ruler named Pilate, and I want to remind you, it was actually back in chapter 3 of this book where Luke first introduced us to this character named Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea. In order to grasp the sort of person that Pilate was, I want to consider the historical accounts of men like Philo and Josephus. You know, according to the Jewish philosopher named Philo, Pilate was a man of, and I quote, inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition. So according to Philo, he wasn't a great guy. There was also a Jewish historian named Josephus who recounts the time when Pilate abused his authority. He did this by stealing money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct there in Jerusalem. And when the people protested, well, that's when Pilate decided to send his soldiers to go and silence those who opposed him and with uh, brute force and many people ended up dying. Josephus also tells us about this day when Pilate met Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's in the 18th book of his Antiquities. That's where uh, Josephus declared, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. Josephus continues, He drew over to him, both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day." Here in this passage, we find this historian named Josephus telling us about this day when Pilate condemned Christ Jesus to the death of the cross. And at the same time, we must not fail to notice that Pilate's decision, well, according to Josephus, it was actually based on a suggestion that had been presented to him by the principal men amongst the Jews. In this way, Josephus was confirming the biblical account that Christ Jesus ended up being crucified on a a Roman cross because of the religious leaders of Israel pressuring Pilate to prosecute our Savior. And you might be wondering, why did these religious leaders of Israel need permission from Pilate? Why did they need permission from a Roman governor to execute this, this, this Jewish man named Jesus? If this is what you're wondering, then you should know that the Roman Empire had already encompassed the land of promise at this point in time. Therefore, they no longer had the authority to call for the execution of their criminals. That being the case, they were required by Roman law to seek the judgment of their Roman rulers. And it's for this reason that the Sanhedrin hauled the Lord Jesus before Pilate. And not only that, uh, but they also stacked the deck against Jesus by presenting Pilate with several false accusations. Now, what this as the focus Let's back up and turn our attention back to Luke's account here. If you would look with me back at verse 2. Here we learn that they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now just to be clear, the word accuse here is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who charge another with some offense. This could refer to a relational accusation made by those who accuse their friends or or family members of of doing them wrong in some sort of way. The, The same word was also used of the formal indictments made by those who present their accusations in a court of law. It's also interesting to note that this is the same Greek word that John used. In Revelation chapter twelve, where he describes the devil as the accuser of our brethren, who accuse them before our God day and night. Did you know that that the devil goes before God every day, accusing us? And you know he doesn't have to make anything up. We give him everything he needs to accuse us. But he is the the accuser of the brethren. Thankfully, we have a mediator, Christ Jesus, who defends us. Praise the Lord. But as we consider the meaning of this word accuser, we should take a moment to point uh, to consider here that the average person doesn't like being accused of wrong, wrongdoing. If somebody accuses us of wrongdoing, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel nice, and it'll definitely strain a relationship. And while I'm certain that we're all less than thrilled when people make accusations against us, we must also realize that our disappointment doesn't automatically make the accusation wrong. Just because we don't like the accusation doesn't mean the accusation is wrong. It might be true. Truth be told, some accusations are based on the truth, regardless of whether we're willing to admit it or not. You know, nobody in jail did it. Yeah, <laughs> go interview the people in jail. Did you do it? No, I didn't do it. So all the accusations are just false, right? Yep. Nobody wants to confess. Nobody wants to admit. Nobody likes being accused. At the same time, it's also important to understand that there are false accusations that have no basis in reality. Reality. You know, there are times when you read something online, uh, an accusation made against someone else, that's completely false, and yet everybody just jumps on the bandwagon and believes it. We find an example of this here in our text today. We find the religious leaders of Israel accusing Jesus of several things, and yet they're false accusations. As a matter of fact, look with me again here, beginning at verse 2. Here again, we learn that they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Here in this verse, we find these religious leaders there in Israel presenting Pilate with three false accusations against Jesus. As we take a closer look at these accusations, we can see that these guys didn't mind lying. They didn't mind lying in order to accomplish their agenda. As a matter of fact, When they told Pilate that the Lord Jesus was perverting the nation, they were actually accusing him of turning the people away from the path of righteousness with false doctrines. Yeah, they're they're saying that Jesus was teaching false doctrines designed to lead the people astray, and yet I'm sure we all realize this is nothing more than a false accusation. Jesus was correcting them for teaching false doctrines. They also told Pilate that Christ Jesus was telling people to stop paying taxes to Caesar. And yet, I'll I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 20 where Jesus told them to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Clearly, this was another false accusation designed to anger Pontius Pilate. What? He's saying, don't pay your taxes? Send in the FBI, send in the IRS, send in the. That's what they wanted. Finally, it's there at the end of verse two where we find them informing Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ who is king. Now, now that's true. And, and yet the implication of the accusation was that he's lying when he says it. So again, a false accusation by implication. Therefore, this, the, the implication of this third accusation was actually based on well another lie. They were trying to lie that Jesus is not the Christ and therefore not the king, and yet he is. Now with all this in mind, I want to consider how Pilate handled these accusations. Notice with me again there at verse three. Here we read, Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. I love this. Pilate simply ignored the first two accusations, and if I had to guess why, it's because he didn't really care what Jesus was teaching in Israel, nor, uh, you know, he didn't really care what he was saying about religious theology, and, and probably didn't really much care about what Jesus Christ thought about Roman politics or taxes. So he just brushes right past those first two accusations and jumps to the one that interested him, which is whether or not Jesus Christ is the king. He wanted to know, is Jesus the Christ and therefore the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus could have responded by making accusations against his accusers. He could have taken this opportunity to say, well, they're just making stuff up about me. Let me tell you more about them. Let me tell you what they're doing. And he could have, in his defense, just turned the tables and just started making accusations against his accusers. But he didn't. He could have you know, gotten out of this whole trial by just saying, no, no, I'm, you know, they're, they're all insane, I'm, I'm innocent, let me go. He could have gone that route, but he didn't. Jesus simply confirmed the truth. He told the truth by declaring, it's as you say. The Apostle John presents us with more details about this interrogation. It's actually in John chapter 18 where we learn that Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. From this we can see that the Lord Jesus not only responded to the false accusations of his accusers by simply speaking the truth, but he also responded to those false accusations made against him by helping Pilate to understand that those who really want to know what is true will listen to his voice. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And so he always told the truth. In light of his example, we should respond to every false accusation in the same way that Jesus responded. And we do this by bearing witness to the truth. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. It's verse 25 where he declares, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor." for we are members of one another. Christian, listen, we've been called to put away lying. And what this means then is that those who walk in the truth, we ourselves ought to stop making false accusations about others. Christian, if you're going to walk in the truth, then you should stop making false accusations about others. We should be truth tellers, just like Jesus, who is the truth. And listen, this is true also, even when we're dealing with those who are attempting to defame our name with false accusations. How easy is it for us to say, oh, well, if they're going to accuse me falsely, then I get to accuse them falsely too. No, we don't. Not if we're going to walk in the truth. Rather than responding to false accusations by making false accusations against our accusers, we've been called to tell the truth as we walk in the love of the Lord. And yeah, even if that truth gets us in trouble, we've been called to walk in truth because those who walk with Jesus are walking with the truth. And while the disciples of Christ should deal with defamation by telling the truth, we should also deal with defamation by restraining our response. And with this as the goal, let's continue to consider Luke's account, which is found here in Luke chapter 23. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here Luke tells us that Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man, but they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, I want to stop right here, because it's here in these verses where the religious leaders of Israel, they, they began to take issue with Pilate's judicial decision. He says, I find no fault here. There's nothing to try this guy over. There, there's no reason for crucifixion. But they weren't satisfied with this ruling. And while it's true that Pilate initially found no fault in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's also true that the Sanhedrin decided to demand a different decision by doubling down on these false accusations. Uh, As a matter of fact, notice again in verse 5 there we learn that they were the more fierce, not in, in a hip 21st century way. But they were they were more emphatic, insisting that Jesus was guilty. They stepped it up a notch trying to convince Pilate that Christ Jesus was attempting to create an insurrection against Rome and therefore deserving of crucifixion. Now as we consider their fierce and false accusation, we should take a moment to consider the way that Christ Jesus then responded to them. and With this as the focus, I I should first point out that there's no recorded response here in the Gospel of Luke. That's right, the Lord Jesus didn't directly respond to his accusers. And while he could have immediately exposed them as liars who were falsely accusing him, he didn't. No, instead he restrained his response as he waited for Pilate to to then address the accusations. You know, sometimes in a court of law, it's just good to remain silent. Because sometimes the accusers are making their own case against them, you know. And so Jesus just remained silent because, you know, Pilate wasn't really buying into all of this. And so Jesus just restrained his response. But then in the process of this trial, Christ Jesus continued to show restraint as he did end up responding to Pilate's interrogative inquiries. In order to further explain my point, let's consider John's account of this conversation. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18 as you're making your way to the 18th chapter of John's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that Pilate wasn't interrogating some delusional Jew who was you know, just off his rocker and making all kinds of claims about being Christ. Pilate wasn't interrogating some out-of-his-mind man who's merely pretending to be the Messiah. No, he was interrogating the King of Kings. He was interrogating the lord of lords. And Jesus could have responded to this interrogation with the right a retribution of, a, of righteous wrath. He could have just rained down hellfire upon this courtroom. But he didn't. He restrained himself in his response. To prove my point, I want to consider the account found here in John chapter 18. Look with me there, beginning at verse 33. Here we learn that Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Wow. As we consider this conversation, we, we must not fail to remember here that Christ Jesus, he could have called down legions of angels to come and just capture his accusers. If he wanted to, he could have called his servants to go and fight against Rome and the king of kings could have responded to this interrogation by rising up against the Roman Empire in, in order to overthrow the authority of Pilate and Caesar and anyone else. He could have. Could have responded in all of these ways, but rather than responding to this situation in these ways, he restrained his response because Christ Jesus realized that the cross must precede the crown. The cross must come first and then the crown. And as we consider the restrained response of Christ Jesus, I'm reminded of something King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 29 there. He declares, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Jesus wasn't about to be a fool here. Just vent everything that he was feeling there in, in, in his humanity. No. A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Christian, listen, those who fail to restrain their response by simply just sharing all of their suspicions, they're actually, you know, foolish believers who are, you know, bound up by their hurt feelings. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to follow in the footsteps of Christ Jesus. And we do this by making sure that we restrain our response as we consider how Christ would have us to respond. Now listen, I totally understand how easy it is for us to go on the attack. It's the tendency of most of us to, you know, as we're being attacked to to respond with like, you know, fighting the fire with fire, so to speak. It's easy to go on the attack as we respond, especially to false accusations from those who are lying about us. I also realize how easy it is for us to use our social media platforms as a medium for venting all of our feelings. And it's sad to say that, you know, many Christians get caught up into this thinking that, yep, you know, I gotta go and say everything that's on my mind on on my social media platform or in the in the response section of somebody's comments. Before we do this, though, we would do well to consider a handful of scriptures that challenge us to become believers who actually learn to restrain their response. For example, in James chapter one, James declares this: He says, "So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear." Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Rather than rushing to respond to every accusation, Christians should be swift to hear, meaning you know, fast to consider what, what's being said, and then slow to respond. In the same chapter, James also declares, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. The Christian who just goes off and invents all their feelings without even giving any thought to what they're saying, their religion is useless. Therefore, we must get control of the words that come out of our mouth. King Solomon weighed in on this in Proverbs chapter 29. There he asks, do you see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Wow. Those of us who are quick to respond are also quick to sin in the way we respond. In Proverbs 13, King Solomon presents us with another word of warning by declaring, He who guards his mouth preserves his life. But he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Or, in other words, who, those who are failing to restrain their response, well, they're probably destroying their lives. They're probably destroying their friendships, they're probably destroying their testimony. and there's a wake of destruction behind the person who just says whatever's on their mind. With all this being the case, we would all do well to apply the prayer that King David prayed in Psalm 141. It's in the 141st Psalm, verse 3, where King David declares, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I love this prayer because it helps us to remember that when it comes to the goal of restraining our response, we desperately need help from God. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. David's saying, I can't do this on my own. I have to say what's on my mind. So help me, God. God. Help me not to. We desperately need supernatural help from the Holy Spirit. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian, including myself, of course, to to pray this sort of prayer before we begin to respond to those who are defaming our good name with false accusations, because we might feel justified in rushing to the response that we want to put out there, but it might not be from the Lord. So we need to pray. Pray. Lord, help me to restrain my words so that only what you would say would come out. We need to restrain our response according to the divine guidance of God. I I like the way that Paul put it in Colossians chapter four. There he declares, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Instead of venting all of our feelings, and rather than, re, uh, than responding re- with reviling accusation when those uh, revile us, let's be patient. Let's, let's be prayerful. Let's wait for the wisdom of God. And then as the Lord leads, let's walk in his wisdom as we restrain our response according to the grace of God. And while well, I realize that our flesh is always ready to rebuke those who defame our name, uh, the born-again believer would do better to follow in the footsteps of Jesus we, as, as we learn how to restrain our response. So we see then that the disciples of Christ have been called to deal with defamation by telling the truth. We, we should also deal with defamation by restraining our response. Thirdly, And finally, we should uh, deal with defamation by enduring the enmity. To explain what I mean, let's continue to consider Luke's account, which is found in, here in Luke chapter 23. I want to draw your attention there, beginning at verse 6. Here Luke writes, When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, now here in these verses, we find Pilate, he's attempting to avoid making this judgment He wants to, you know, he's already decided that he finds no fault in Jesus Christ. And they're insisting, oh, no, you got it wrong. And so he's just wanting to be done with it. He wants nothing to do with this. And he finds a judicial technicality. Don't you love judges? He finds a judicial technicality regarding the the, the place where Jesus is from. Now, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem but it'll help us to remember that Jesus was actually raised in Nazareth. And Nazareth was located in the northern region of Galilee. Not only that, but the majority of our Savior's earthly ministry took place there in that region of Galilee. Therefore, when Pilate heard that Jesus was a Galilean and and that he was uh, effectively stirring up the Galileans first, well, he quickly, quickly capitalized on this fact by insisting that, well, the trial isn't under his jurisdiction there in Judea. That it really belongs to Herod, because Herod was technically over Galilee. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 3 of this book, where Luke first informs us that Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. So he's just a Roman governor over the southern region of the, the promised land. That being the case, Pilate decides here to remove himself from these proceedings by reminding the religious leaders of Israel that Herod was the the ruler who actually had jurisdiction over Jesus. And since Herod uh, was actually officing there in Jerusalem at that point in time, Jesus then was immediately hauled off to Herod's court. With this as a focus, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 8. Here Luke tells us that when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see Jesus, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing, and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus standing before Herod. And while Herod was hoping to see our Savior perform some sort of miracle, like he was some sort of like David Copperfield or something like that, Jesus isn't some sort of magician that was, you know, sent to come do parlor parlor tricks to entertain politicians. So Jesus didn't perform a miracle. He didn't even answer Herod. At that point in time, his accusers became more emphatic as they stood before Pilate. You know, they they stood before Pilate and, and, you know, they became fierce in their accusations. But now they're turning up the passion to, to 11 as they forcibly present their false accusations before Herod. And in this way, we can see how the scribes and the chief priests, they were determined to defame the name of the Lord until he was crucified. As a matter of fact, you know it's there in verse ten where we learn that the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently uh, accused him. And and it's it's uh, in the New Living Translation version of the Bible where the scholars rendered the Greek in this way: the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there, shouting their accusations. They went into Herod's court, shouting their accusations about Jesus Christ. We we aren't told what they were shouting, but we can be certain that they were doing their best to defame the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that some ruler might make a decision to crucify him. What this means is that the members of the Sanhedrin were willing to say anything. They They were willing to say anything about our Savior in order to convince Herod to crucify Christ Jesus. And yet, Their defamations only resulted in a brutal beating. Let's consider how Luke put it here in Luke 23. If you would look with me once again at verse 11. Here Luke declares, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Now, here in these verses we find Herod and Pilate... They're patching up their relationship. And we aren't told what the enmity was. We We don't understand what the conflict was. But here we find them reconnecting over their rejection of Jesus. They were reunited and it felt so good. They became fast friends after realizing that neither of them wanted anything to do with Jesus Christ. And from this, we can see how Jesus, Jesus brings people together. Amen. This includes our connection with other Christians here within our community of faith. But listen, this also includes the connection of unbelievers who feel an affinity for those who are also rejecting Jesus Christ. If you've ever been to like an atheist meeting, you know, they love to sit around and talk about how much they hate the God they claim doesn't exist. What? Why would you have a meeting that's just a meeting about why you don't believe in in something you don't believe in? Seems like a real waste of time. I don't believe in God more than you. Oh, no, I don't believe in God so much more because God is mean because he allows evil to exist. And so therefore he must not exist. Wow. Okay. Yep. Jesus brings people together on both sides of faith. This reminds me of something that Jesus said back in Luke chapter 11. There he declares, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Yeah, forget about gender and and, and race and social class and all these sorts of things. There's there's only two types of people in the world. Those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Those who trust in Christ and are saved and those who are rejecting Jesus. Those are the only real two distinctions that matter. And here we find Herod and Pilate. Pilate discovering a a new friendship in their rejection of Jesus. We should also notice there in verse 11 where we learn that Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. Speaking of Jesus here, they treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. In other words, Herod and his men decided to defame the Lord Jesus and they did this by ridiculing our Redeemer. Rather than feeling threatened by the accusations made against him that Jesus had claimed to be Christ the King, King Herod continued to treat Christ with contempt by covering him with one of his own royal robes. Yeah, King Herod wasn't like, oh no, this guy's the king, he's going to replace me. No. Nope. He mocked him. He ran and got one of his robes and said, oh, here here, King Jesus as they ridiculed him. And after defaming the good name of Jesus Christ, King Herod then sent our Savior just right back to Pilate, washed his hands of the whole thing. All the while, the Lord Jesus is just patiently enduring these attacks. He's patiently enduring the accusations. He's patiently enduring the beatings. He's patiently enduring the ridicule and the mocking of those who were defaming his good name. As we consider the way that Jesus endured these accusations and and endured the attacks of the enemy, we we must not fail to realize that the Lord was allowing his enemies to accomplish their evil agenda so that sinners might be saved through the blood of his sacrifice because this is why he came, to receive our punishment there on the cross so that sinners who trust in, in him can be saved. At the same time, the Lord was also providing us with an example of what it looks like to endure the animosity of angry antagonists who can't stand our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in light of his example, we would all do well to learn how to endure personal attacks. You know, the ones that come from those who love to, 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 to defame the disciples of Christ. And, and one reason why we must learn how to endure these attacks Well, it's found in Luke chapter 6. It's there where Jesus declares, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, the Christian who ends up being reviled for the sake of our Redeemer, Jesus, ends up receiving rewards in heaven. And while I realize that there are many of us who would rather avoid the defamation that occurs whenever unbelievers try to cancel us, I encourage you to remember that those who are criticized for the sake of our Savior, well, we end up being compensated, don't we? will be compensated on the day we stand before Christ Jesus because our Redeemer is going to reward us for suffering these attacks. We can rejoice in this promise as we endure the enmity of those who try to defame our name, knowing that the Lord Jesus will compensate us for our trouble as we enter his presence. The Apostle Peter confirms this in his epistle it's in his first epistle. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of First Peter, I just want to take a moment to address the concerns of those who think that it's better to avoid the, the personal attacks of those who want to defame the disciples of Christ. Uh, there are many Christians who think, well, it's just better if I just fly under the radar, if I, if I can just kind of avoid you know, the personal attacks. If I, can, if I can just avoid the, 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 those who are critical of Christians. Many Christians hide their faith from their friends for, for fear of rejection. There are believers who hide their faith at work for fear of their coworkers, maybe trying to get them in trouble or, or a boss keeping them from promotion. There are students who hide their faith at school for fear that their teacher might fail them. If any of this sounds like something you struggle with, then I, I pray that you'll receive the admonition that Peter presents here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 13. Here the apostle asks, "'Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled.'" but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Christian, listen, if you've been keeping your faith under the radar in in, in the hopes of avoiding the attacks of those who love defaming the disciples of Christ, if that's been your MO to try to fly under the radar in in the hopes of avoiding these, uh, these personal attacks, please trust me when I tell you that your plan is not better than God's your plan is not better than God's because according to Peter, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I'm here to tell you that you're missing out on many blessings that believers receive whenever we learn to endure the enmity of unbelievers. And that's why Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. There's a blessing That comes along with being persecuted and falsely accused for the sake of our Savior. Now, I realize that many believers don't don't see the blessing. And they think it's better to avoid these attacks. But the Apostle Peter assures us that it's better to suffer for doing good according to the will of God. And so rather than hiding our faith, I encourage every Christian, let's just learn to deal with defamation. We do this by enduring the enmity of unbelievers. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's my hope that we would all begin to realize that the true disciples of Christ are eventually going to be defamed for our faith in the Lord. It's only a matter of time. And listen, there are Christians who try to hide their faith and fly under the radar who are are eventually defamed for being hypocrites. Once their faith is finally out there and the people around them realize that they've been hiding it this whole time, they get defamed for something that's actually true, hypocrisy. I'd rather avoid that and just be flat out lied about by those who defame the disciples of Christ. we're all eventually going to be defamed for our faith in Jesus at some point in time. Therefore, rather than trying to avoid these attacks, we'd do better to learn just how to deal with them in a way that glorifies God. With this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that the disciples of Christ have been called to deal with defamation by simply telling the truth. Let's speak the truth in love. Even if our audience doesn't like what they hear. The disciples of Christ have also been called to deal with defamation by restraining our response. And so rather than just venting all of our feelings like a fool, let's ask the Lord to set a guard over our mouths and wait for him to guide us in our response. And finally, the disciples of Christ have been called to deal with defamation by enduring the enmity of those who would attack us for our faith. And listen, as we learn how to deal with defamation by telling the truth and restraining our response and enduring the enmity, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is going to use our response to reveal his grace to those who are defaming us. You might not know that, but it's true. The Lord will use our response to reveal his grace to those who defame our good name. And while I realize that it's e- easier to go on the attack in response as we attempt to deal with those defamers, we must realize that our righteous response to defamation might just be the catalyst to their conversion. Think about that for a moment. Someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the way that you graciously responded to their defamation. How incredible would that be? Rather than returning reviling accusations for reviling accusations. Let's let's be willing to suffer the defamation of evildoers, so that maybe, just maybe, they might be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, I assure you that this really is the best way for us to deal with defamation. Let's pray.